Hello, and welcome to The Exit presented by Flippa. This is a 30-minute podcast featuring amazing entrepreneurs who have been there and they have done it. The Exit talks to operators who have bought and sold businesses of all different sizes. You'll learn how they did it, why they did it, and get exposure to the world of exits. It's a world occupied by a small few, but accessible to many. Now, in this episode, I sit down with Diana Brown. She's a fantastic entrepreneur, and she's really interested in entrepreneurship for change. And she's founded incredible businesses over the past decade, and she is really a pretty much expert at exits at this point. (laughs) She's exited over a handful of times, and she talks through a lot of the details around how to prepare for an exit and what happens after the fact, as well as timeframes and expectations and just overall being prepared for these exits and starting in the media business, really getting a foothold in how media businesses operate and now uh, moving into various different industries is very exciting to see her doing that. And without further ado, let's jump right into my interview here on the exit with Deanna Brown, the founder and entrepreneur for change. All right, everyone. Today I am joined with the founder and entrepreneur for change, Deanna Brown. How are you doing today, Deanna? Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, excited to dig in here. So sure. before we get into the multiple exits uh, that you've had and the success that you've had, let's talk about how you got started and what brought you into business and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, I um, grew up outside of Philadelphia and made my way to Los Angeles uh, to join a university and study journalism and filmmaking and found quickly in the course of my studies at USC that there was a lot in this world that I was curious about. And so curiosity led me into the media business in particular. Um, And I found my air quotes career in the business side of media and then ultimately the digital world back in 1994 uh, when I joined Condé Nast to, to launch their new media division. And it was in those formative years that I really learned a lot about what people were passionate about, what process and sort of projects would ultimately excite consumers and businesses. And that led me into a series of engagements that were, dare I say, very entrepreneurial and very change oriented. So um, it really became as much a craft as it was uh, a curiosity sort of path. And I think the journalism background really did help because it sort of taught you both how to listen and engage in communication and dialogue. And I would say that the last three decades have been about listening and really connecting with people. Yeah. So what was the, the first kind of breakthrough business we'll call it? I, I never have a, yeah. a fixed word to describe the first initial business where you saw success, but uh, what was what was that like for you, and um, you know what what led to the success? I, I probably well, I you know I spent a a, a fifteen minute genre, you know stint in um, in sort of print publishing. I think the the seminal moments were probably at Condé Nast when we launched the new media division, and I think what was relevant there was a series of assets or intellectual properties or brands even um, that Newhouse owned that had such ripe possibilities 
for those who could imagine them in a different form um, and specifically digital. So there's that curiosity, there's that imagination. And then ultimately, which became a sort of a pillar of, of my success is really, how do we productize it? How do we think about it in a sustainable and engaging way? Um, and that's when we, our first real launch was Epicurious, where we took two venerable brands, Gourmet and Bon Appetit, and really um, created something new, right? A word that nobody could spell. And uh, <laughs> it was the first sort of structured database of recipes online. And it was understanding the form or function of a recipe being a desired output of a magazine that was glossy and just gorgeous, but the underpinnings were that ultimate recipe. Um, so it's that imagination and that curiosity and, and just, and then paying attention to what consumers and or buyers or users are, are interested in. Um, so those are probably the days that for me were seminal, but also ripe with learning. And the way Newhouse treated the division was as its own separate entity. So I'd also say it was probably the first engagement where I felt like we were entrepreneurs. I felt independent of a sort of corporate entity. There was a day where he physically signed over the rights to all the brands for the publications to this division. And we operated as a small company outside of the lavish, gorgeous offices. And we were scrappy and we, we made things happen on a daily basis, which was less traditional of that empire, the, that legacy empire. Hmm. Very cool. And you had kind of the, the resources of this, uh, you know, larger division that you rolled out into your own kind of entity that you were in control of. That's a fantastic way of kind of having an early investor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a way with it, a lot of resources. Yeah. And, and Newhouse himself was very much, um, was very mercurial as people have noted in his legacy. But what I found him really interesting was and important was his curiosity and his lifelong journey around wanting to learn. And to your point about having an investor, he was also at the time very curious about what was happening at MIT and, and Negroponte and all that was going on there. He was early into Wired uh, the Wired franchise, Wired magazine, and ultimately the website. Um, and it was through that investor mentality that I also was learning a, a lot about how to relate to owners and operators, but also buyers and sellers. Because there was uh, numerous opportunities for him to buy other things to add to the portfolio. And we were in sort of a constant state of understanding where we had strengths and where we needed to sort of either make up for the, the, the viability of the enterprise, right? And where we could acquire, uh, you know, assets. So I, that was probably the first case where I was also sort of on the buy side, where we would look at things and say, hey, we weren't really in the business of selling, but we were in the business of buying. And so understanding what was happening across the table with entrepreneurs was really a great sort of first view into that. And th this company was called Ep Epicurious? Was that what it was called? The, the company was called Condinet. So it was Condi, C-O-N-D-E, and then capital N-N-E-T as an in internet. 
And Epicurious was the first website we built. Got it. And was still one of the, interestingly enough, one of the top recipe search products online still today and um, has a legacy of great, great, great innovation. Nice. So the the company that you exit exited first initially, I'd love to dig into your your successes that you've had. For listeners out there that are you know operating a business, they're thinking about potentially selling, um, wondering around the, the timing and everything. In your experience, what was what were some of the most important things that you were tracking? You know, KPIs or however you want to describe the success of each one. But for your exits. What would you say were were the most important pieces that you guys were tracking as a as a business that led to your your exit? Um, you know, I think the early exits were very much around what I call traditional financial metrics, right? It was early days, um, and because many of these companies were pre revenue, it wasn't about EBITDA or, you know, but it was more about revenue growth. It was more about, um, you know, sort of product market fit, right? And how you would measure product market fit in sort of an analytical sense is engagement metrics, right? So you had one tier of, okay, let's acknowledge the fact that we're pre-revenue or pre-profit, but let's look at revenue growth. And the second tier of sort of metrics and analytics is, does this product show the path to that? And as a result, is it is there product market fit? And how we could do describe that would be loosely based on engagement metrics, growth metrics around audiences and, and things of that nature. And then the last set of metrics that was most interesting one to me was really because what it took me a couple of exits to figure this out, but that the teams that we were building were many times as valuable as the assets themselves because these are very these are very early stage exits. So metrics in the sort of human capital area were important, right? Which is, did we have a team of engineers uh, and or creative execs or business executives that were engaged and passionate? Um, and those metrics uh, were, you know, as I said things that we wouldn't necessarily put on a slide when we were having sort of those early day conversations around exits, but they were things that would become metrics on the other side of the table, Mm -hmm. right? They would be things that people would ask us questions about. And that would be those areas where we'd be like, okay, I get it. This is in fact important to these folks. And so for me, that was something to sort of keep my eye on, not just as an operator, but as really somebody who um, knew that an exit was a measure of success. Hey guys, Steve here and taking a quick pause from the interview. I know that selling a business can feel unattainable and just out of reach for everybody. 
but it's definitely something that is very reachable for people that are listening to this podcast with Flippa. And I've mentioned that this show is presented by Flippa. They have over 3 million users on their platform who are looking to acquire everything from content sites to e-commerce stores to SaaS platforms or even mobile applications. So if you're curious and want to know more about what your business is worth, head to flippa.com slash the exit for free valuations on your business. It takes a couple minutes to literally go through and you can just go through the whole process without committing to anything at all. So once again, flipit.com slash the exit, check it out, get evaluation on your business without any commitments and just see exactly what your valuation of your business is worth. So let's dive into the interview. In terms of the, the acquiring companies, I know we said we didn't want to really mention any names or name drop, but how did you come across them? Was it outreach from you guys? Were they customers? Were they partners, investors? How did the, the acquisitions happen? Yeah, I mean, acquisitions, there were a couple of things about acquisitions that were early lessons for me. Um, first and foremost, when most companies are desirous of an exit, it's usually one of two things. They are, and by the way, they're not usually good things. They are either in distress and can't see a path forward. Um, and in most cases, that category of companies were under invested in, right? So you had, a, you had an existing circumstance, which is they, they didn't have enough capital to begin with, and then they, they were distressed. So when you look at the timeline, which I sort of had worked with many of these companies, let's say mid to late 90s through, um, you know, as recently as 2020, you'll see a couple of valleys where the companies that were I was exiting or transitioning were at a, at a moment in time where the economy was not serving them and they were under invested in. Um, and so those type of sales or exits are sort of fraught with what we call like landing the plane, right? Which is how do we safely get this product set, this group of people, this sort of business, if you will, to a safe place because they're underfunded and ultimately they're they're not able to raise capital and they, the only way to, to, to really keep it alive is to, to exit it. And in those cases, I found that being able to see ahead of the curve, being able to anticipate this, this intersection of cash flow needs and, you know, market conditions and sort of landscape, right? I would invariably avoid putting a black book out and going to bankers. I would invariably just start networking like crazy, right? Which is how do we view air quotes of partnership? How do we talk to these strategic possible acquirers and or partners in a way that is collaborative and ultimately sends signals to them that there's a bigger opportunity here, right? Than just air quotes partnering, right? It's, I would just get out ahead of it and say, hey, you know what, quietly, we've got opportunities here that range from, you know, a business partnership to, you know, acquisition. What's your sort of appetite? 
that was in the late 90s and you know going back to a a print publication that had a, a lot of frothiness around it um but digitally was on fire that was you know sort of surprising to people because of the sort of pomp circumstance around it when i got notably into the largest fundraised uh capitalized business in the late 90s into 2001 when the bubble burst that was a conversation a quiet conversation at a handful of conferences with other founders in a similar situation and said can we merge can we take the best of all these pieces and through that discussion ultimately what happened was somebody else came in the you know the dark angel came in from another angle cuz they heard we were talking right and so it was just the conversations and being you know quiet we just not to upset the the workforce but quietly sort of open to the fact that there were needed a transition needed to happen mm-hmm. but i think it was just the the idea that instead of saying hey put a for sale sign up and sort of risk all kinds of things being open to a variety of relationships that range from business scaffolding to you know actual exit with what's in the best mindset of there i say the workforce and the product set right because both of those two things had value there were people i spoke to who had no interest in a digital series of digital websites associated with trade publishing but they absolutely adored the content management system that we'd built because at the time CMSs didn't exist out of the box and they absolutely loved the editorial team. Mm. So they were like we want to take this group of people and that that thing and apply it to a totally different industry. Um and so and I wouldn't have known that that was even a possibility. I don't think the bankers would have even thought that oh let's go to talk to that company. You know, and then on the other end of the spectrum post that engagement I started something literally out of my second bedroom with uh two or three writers reporters editors that got acquired almost instantaneously because the mindset and the brand was very different than the existing business and so that was that acquisition happened that was a case where i wasn't networking the the largest entity in the, that space came in and just gobbled us up right just immediately saw that as like that was an inbound and in that case you know being open like most entrepreneurs might have said hey you know what i'm not ready like it's way, far too early but i i sort of was weighing the notion that i was passionate about the space and i was curious about the space and i wanted the product to exist i wasn't as concerned about how much money i was going to make right i was more interested in this needs to exist um and i thought if i don't go now it's that they're going to dig in and it's going to be headwinds that i won't be able to overcome so that was an exit where probably premature of when i should have exited if if the metric of success was cash but the metric of success was the product is good it needs to exist how do we how do we sort of set it up for success and and take myself out of the equation i i hope these are 
you know, give, giving you guidance without specifics. I think key is don't just put a for sale sign up. Be open to a range of opportunities. I think we can define exit pretty broadly here. Yeah. Recognize that what matters to companies, it's very easy or relatively easy to sell a profitable entity. But much of the acquisitive market is tied to pre-revenue or pre-profitability. So then you think about what are the two other two desired things that a entrepreneurial entity offers an acquirer, one human capital, and that's super important and sometimes hard to measure until you get to know the company. And two, a product or a product market fit that is brings that larger entity typically to market um, quicker when they haven't been able to do it internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. I, I like that you you touched on you know even the the banker wouldn't be able to identify. Okay, this is this acquisition would work because the people and the piece that they've built the CMS is what they need to show this opportunity in the future. Because uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that an acquisition is about projected future value for the mm-hmm. acquiring company. Like they want to turn a $10 million business into a hundred million dollar business and figuring out how that, uh, how that works and plugging and playing with the different things. Like a CMS is, is a great example of this underlying asset within your company that you guys, it sounds mm-hmm. like you custom built that they could utilize. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a very great example of like an aqua hire using different assets that they can use uh, for their, for their current business. So preparing for those exits, you know, a mm-hmm. lot goes into it. What would you say for, for a brand new entrepreneur out there that's just started, you know, maybe a year old of a business and they're thinking about preparing, whether it's, you know, financially, mentally, uh, everything, what would you say are some tips that you could provide to, to prepare yourself for going through something like what you've gone through? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's things that are very tactical and business oriented. You know, the how is is super important. I think, and that in that spirit, you know, what you want to prepare is you want to have, you want to be well organized, and you want to have everything from your financial books in as clean a state as possible. You want to be legally unencumbered. So if you if there's anything that's happening around your around your company, you can't, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs come to entrepreneurialism through a product lens or through a tech lens or even through a business lens. Um, it's very infrequently that someone comes in with a legal background and find, you know, creates a company or entity. But, you know, you can't ignore that side of your business if you're the top executive because being encumbered in any way, you know, threatened or other, you know, rational or unrational, irrational, it's, it's just, it ends up shutting the conversation down because it's, it's just a, a game stopper. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing I would say is really operate your business like you were staying in business and try not to pull up short, as I, as I referred to it, in the sense that you're thinking, hey, I'm going to be out in six months or six weeks or six days once this transaction happens. Um, I can pull my foot off the, uh, off the gas, right? I can, I can sort of slow down 
because uh, results aren't going to be necessarily that critical. Um, I would say just quite the counter. I mean, I found myself prior to some of these exits really working harder than I had pre because I knew that there was always going to be a diligence phase and there was always going to be, you know, most deals are structured as such that you have sort of an earnout or something post based on a certain window of time. Mm-hmm. And so I found that almost ignoring the fact that I was in acquisitive or acquisition conversations and working as, as diligently as I could on the business was as critical a factor in a final price or a final deal structure. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had to, and then last but not least, I had to always, while being transparent and being authentic and truly being the leader that I, I think I'm capable of, I really had to keep the teams focused on similarly what they were doing and whether they were aware that we were in acquisition talks or not was again, less meaningful. It was more, Hey, how do we really continue to deliver? Mm -hmm. Because until that ink is dry, you know, until you hand, until I, and I've done a lot of deals where I've signed my own severance check at the, at the point of signing the deal, I had to keep working through that, um, that phase as if the deal wasn't going to happen. Cause there've been too many times where companies will come in and look at you um, as an acquirer. And if you ride a, a roller coaster with those talks, you're not able to operate. Um, and a lot of times companies will, and not in a nefarious way, but they will come in and sort of start sniffing around and get you excited and talk about the potential when in fact, they're just trying to learn the market space, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times companies will flirt with you and tell you, you know, all kinds of wonderful stories uh, you know, until you see a term sheet, until you start to get into the diligence, kind of contain that enthusiasm because it's it's going to keep you from doing your job every day because you've got to keep operating through that that window of time. And I've seen some deals have happened literally in about two to three weeks, but the but typically we're talking three to six months. Mm-hmm. is is more likely the case depending on the size of the business and and really the reason the rationale for acquisition mm-hmm. right um, if they're going to throw away the parts or the people they're they're less those deals can happen quicker but the overnight deal is two to three weeks at minimum and if you take your foot off the gas you're in trouble you're going to coast into a wall or something and more likely than not we're talking months even if it's a largest company, you've got to worry about regulatory and other things. It's not a fast process in any stretch. So really trying to manage the work effort, your work product, your team's you know, feelings and emotions, variably they're going to find out. Um, just, you know, just almost ignoring it. It's such a good point about almost the workload before the initial kind of conversation with an acquiring company. And then after that conversation starts and diligence starts, the workload just goes up, up like a hockey stick because you have to keep the foot on the gas. You can't mm-hmm. just coast. And you're also doing all this work to, to provide documents and, and go through the diligence, getting everything in order. 
So the workload just goes up dramatically uh, to really make it a successful transaction. And I really like that point of you know the the workload going up and not letting the business kind of taper down because then the the company <laughs> that's acquiring you will look at it and say like oh you're you're losing momentum what are you doing why aren't you why aren't you still yeah. going and it's like I'm talking to you right now I I'm trying to sell this thing so that's the you know we dove into a lot uh, over the past a few minutes like that was a, a great segment there and what we like to ask everybody on the show to give one consistency is knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? I think I would tell myself to, to be open to change and to transition while focusing on building great businesses. You know, almost ignoring that, that exit. Um, unfortunately for me and many of the great people I've worked with and worked for, the business was always the the thing in front of us right that we were always excited about and while the exit was the reward we we were really good at at staying really focused on you know the the business itself and we knew that the exit would take care of itself and i had great investors early on investors founding investors and the likes of fred and Ted Wilson and Jerry Colonna, who, you know, said, look, you know, people will pay for what it's worth and people will buy companies that are great companies. Do what you do. And uh, I have stayed true to that. And I would continue to tell myself that, right? Ignore the exit, pay attention to the business. Well said. Well said. Well, those are all the questions I have for you. Great. What are you working on now? And where can people go and learn more? Yeah. I mean, stay tuned. Um, I um, have a lot of interesting, exciting projects. I am a passionate entrepreneur. I believe in change and change is probably the most important thing that this world needs right now. Um, so I'd say tune into my LinkedIn profile. I will start to, to reveal the new, the new business opportunity as it comes about towards the end of this year and early next year. And um, just keep everybody just keep doing what they're doing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, wherever you, you guys are listening, all the links uh, to Deanna's profile will be in the show notes, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Great conversation.